Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and illness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of the Lord. You've probably heard the phrase, Australia, the lucky country. Well, it comes from this book published in the 60s. This is my copy of it. It's a bit worn these days. The Lucky Country, Australia in the 1960s. When Donald Horne wrote this book and used this title, he had his tongue placed firmly in cheek because he's using the phrase, the lucky country, to criticise the nation, not to help us bask in our own glory. For this is the first sentence of the conclusion. Listen to it. It's scathing. Australia is a lucky country run mainly by second-class people who also share its luck. It lives on other people's ideas And although its ordinary people are adaptable, I think that's kind of a positive thing, although its ordinary people are adaptable, most of its leaders in all fields so lack curiosity about the events that surround them that they're often taken by surprise. But being laconic, again, I think he's saying that's a good thing, 
They take surprise in their stride. The very scepticism of Australians and their delight in improvisation have meant that so far Australia has scraped through. It's, it's damning. We use the phrase, the lucky country, and we rightly can thank God for the great resources that Australia has given to us to aid our wealth. But behind those resources, our leadership has often been wanting. Now, in the scriptures, God gives leaders to bless his people. But we also find in the scriptures leaders who are bad and misuse, eat up the people, as it were, bringing no glory to God and distracting the people of God from their task in the world. Leadership is quite a significant theme in the scriptural storyline. And Jesus was a great leader. He begins his public ministry in Matthew chapter 4, And he begins by preaching, repent for the kingdom of God has come near. In chapters 5 to 7, Jesus gives us a picture of moral leadership in the Sermon on the Mount. What it would be like if God's people renewed their covenant with the Lord. In chapters 8 and 9, Jesus is busy exercising compassionate leadership, healing and teaching. And in chapter 10, immediately after the passage we've read, Jesus provides the first first ever theological college syllabus, an outline of what those who are representing him in mission need to do to think, to feel, to dream. Jesus is a great leader. Not only does he himself exercise leadership, but he prepares others for leadership as well. We we read in 9.35 that Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and illness. Jesus has come as a son of God to teach and to heal. But his particular teaching is summarised here as preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Two phrases which we're familiar with, but often in the scriptures they're not joined tightly together. We don't see them very often in the same phrase or sentence. Jesus comes preaching the gospel, but it's not just the gospel of your convenience. It's not just a message about your happiness. It's not a message about our material prosperity. It's a message, it's a gospel about the kingdom, about a bigger story. And you can only enter that bigger story we've learnt in Matthew 4 when we repent and trust. Jesus, in preaching the gospel of the kingdom, is inviting to join him in that great plan that God has for the world. And being a Christian is merely aligning yourself with those plans pronounced, enacted and enabled 
in Jesus Christ. We, as Christians, align ourselves with God. In fact, that's what you'll do when you come down the aisle this morning and take the bread and the wine. You're declaring again that you're on the Lord's side. You're renewing your covenant with the Lord. He's offering us in the bread and the wine. And when we take the bread and the wine, we're saying, yes, I'm ready for your mission in the world, Lord. Jesus proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and illness. But we read startlingly in verse 36, when he saw the crowds who'd been accompanying him and surrounding him, of course, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were ignorant and they needed to hear a sermon? No. He had compassion on them because they were sick and they needed physical healing? No. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It's remarkable. He has been teaching and he has been healing, but now he sees the crowds gathered and his gut is torn. Why? Because they're leaderless. The language is strong. They've been thrown down. They've been torn up. They're sheep who haven't been protected by a shepherd. They were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Did any of you see the show? I think it was on Apple, uh, Ted Lasso, which is a magnificent show. It's so gentle but has such deep lessons for our age. If you don't know the story, Ted Lasso was a clueless American coach, not of a soccer club, and he's employed in London, in Richmond, actually, to coach the soccer club, right? So he's got no idea about soccer, but he's also got no idea about English culture. He's kind of a gentle Midwesterner and he's kind of out of his depth. The club is dysfunctional. The players are eating each other. They're jealous of each other. The management is poor. They're in it for what they can get out of it. And in his almost naive way, and as the series roll out, we discover that he has a very significant mental health issue as well. In his own gentle way, he starts repairing this, can I say, flock? This dysfunctional club that through his own gentle leadership no longer is eating each other up or fleecing each other, but actually they work together and... Surprise, surprise, they win a game. Jesus is speaking of that kind of situation where people aren't doing, God's people aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing because they're without the leader who would bind them together and help them out and lead them through. very easy if you're walking down Ligon Street and passing all the folk who are eating in cafes and restaurants out of doors, not to think, these are sheep without a shepherd. They're harassed and helpless. They look healthy, wealthy, occasionally perhaps wise. We don't often see the people around us with Jesus' eyes. 
Jesus sees these crowds not as ignorant or as ill in the first instance, but as shepherdless. We need, we need leaders like that. But interestingly, in verse 37, Jesus changes the picture where we've been talking about shepherds and sheep. Now in verse 37, we start talking about harvesters and fields. He said to his disciples, verse 37, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest. We now get some practical application, some concrete action. Jesus says, pray. Pray that God would raise up more harvesters, still more harvesters, for the harvest is plentiful. It's extraordinary. In Ezekiel 34, the people of God do not have a shepherd. And so God speaks through Ezekiel and says, I am going to send my own son, David, to be a shepherd for the sheep. And he will bind them up and he will lead them. It's a prophecy of Jesus coming. Now Jesus is here and he's saying, I can't do it all by myself. The prophecy is fulfilled. The shepherd has turned up. And the shepherd is saying, I need under-shepherds, I need helpers, I need you to pray that God would raise up more shepherds for the harvest. He can't do it all himself. He could do it all himself, but decides he won't do it all himself. He asks us to pray. And friends, uh, there's a desperate need for leaders in this city and beyond for Christian churches. There are perhaps in Melbourne Anglican Diocese 40 vacant parishes, meaning that there's not a minister. We have 220 parishes in Melbourne. So 40 vacant parishes is effectively a quarter of all Melbourne Anglican churches don't have a minister. That's... uh, I did the sums. In Sydney at the moment, they have 30 vacant parishes, but they have 310 perhaps parishes in all. So effectively 10% of Sydney parishes are vacant, but 25% of Melbourne parishes are vacant. And that's not even to mention non-Anglican churches in Melbourne, right? And that's not to mention country Victoria or rural Australia or overseas opportunities for service. There's an extraordinary need. And I get phone calls most weeks from people in Melbourne and around asking for names of folk I can suggest who might fulfil, take up a children's ministry position or a youth ministry position or uh, a parish position. I'm happy to provide names. It's just that I don't have enough. I did get a phone call from a retired GP in Adelaide who's now in his retirement helping the Archbishop of Adelaide to recruit to find names that they can provide to Anglican churches as suggestions for folk who might minister there. He he, he said to me, "Uh, uh, uh, can you provide some names? I said, sure, Um, I'll probably provide two or three. And he said, oh, my goodness, I need 50. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, I I, I couldn't 
we've got 40 vacant parishes, right? If I had 50 names, we'd solve our problems in Melbourne. He goes, not even Melbourne can provide enough for Melbourne, let alone for us to send elsewhere. His assumption was that Melbourne would be this sending diocese. So we've invited uh, for each lunch this week, next week and in week 12, various clergy from Melbourne to come and join us at lunch. And as you go to lunch today, there'll be a sign on a table saying Parkdale or Elstonwick or Packham or something like that. that. Those are ministers who are running churches who want to recruit people to work for them. So don't be surprised if at lunchtime today they ask you what your ministry aspirations are and if they get out their checkbook. You can then find the table where you think the person might be who you would, uh, whose parish you live near or something like that. It won't work perfectly. But I've asked them to prime the conversation about what you want to do with your life. But, of course, you could be tapping other people on the shoulders, right, and saying, have you thought about Christian ministry? Have you thought about saying it with me? And you have an open day and just, uh, oh, it might even be next week, I think. But behind these strategic things we can do, what I'm asking you, brothers and sisters, to do is just what Jesus has asked us to do, and it's pray. To pray that God would send out workers into his harvest field. Can you... Pray in your quiet times regularly that God would raise up more men and women to lead in his harvest or in your home groups or if you have responsibilities for Sunday services in your church, how are you doing there in praying for God to raise up harvesters for the harvest field? And to my shame, when I looked at the Ridley Chapel list of topics for prayer, I did not have the category raising up future gospel workers, which I've uh, added in this year. Why do I forget this? Why do we forget this? And please continue to pray for Ridley that we'd train folk well for the harvest field. I know it's not easy. The headwinds against Christians are strong. There's not much money around. The culture might not feel comfortable for Christian leaders much anymore. I understand all those pressures. But Jesus did too. And he says, pray the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers for his harvest field. Please do as Jesus asked. Jesus rarely tells us what to pray. Okay, he gives us the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. We know that Jesus prayed often. He retired and went to a secret place, a quiet place to pray. He rarely tells us what to pray, but here he does. He says, pray this. We'd be fools not to pray this, as he's instructed us to do. And as soon as he's prayed it, he chooses the twelve. He's instantly appointing leaders after he's prayed the prayer and he gives them a syllabus explaining what it's going to be like for them 
to be commissioned gospel workers, replicating his own ministry and teaching them how to deal with the opposition that they're bound to face, how to keep motivated, how to think about money and strategic priorities. Friends, this is not a complicated sermon either to deliver or to receive. I am just asking you, as Jesus asked us all, to pray that we wouldn't just imagine we're a lucky church, we're just getting by. We need to be a plucky church where we're determined and focused on praying and working that God would raise up harvesters for the fields arrive. So let me pray. Oh, this is your world, Lord. We praise you that you've called us into work with you. We thank you for this wonderful passage in Matthew chapter 9, which helps us to understand the kind of priority you set on training leaders. So please, Lord of the Harvest, raise up more workers that in Melbourne and beyond in Australia and overseas, we would see many men and women, boys and girls, coming to faith in Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.